This is the fear of science. Hello everyone and welcome to The Fear of Science, the show that dives into the wide world of science and science-adjacent topics to demystify, debunk, and delight. Each show features a new fear, along with special guests, surprises, and discoveries along the way. My name is Daniel Chai. And I'm Jeff Porter. And today, uh, we may sound a little bit different than how you would normally hear us. Uh, usually, we record at the beautiful Vancouver Public Library Inspiration Lab. But uh, we are currently recording this episode during the time of corona, of COVID-19, which uh, is very appropriate for today's subject, which is... The fear of death. Now, uh, joining us for our uh, episode today, we have uh, are very lucky to have two special guests joining us to talk about the subject and uh, see what see what the fear of death is all about and uh, how we feel about it as well. Uh, for for us, who are our guests joining us on this fear of science episode? This is Simon King. That's who I am. Is that is that <laughs> and, and if you've never heard of me, uh, it's because I'm a stand up comedian in Vancouver. There you go. Uh, well, glad to have you here, Simon, uh, and you. also joining us on this episode is Romila Berryman. Uh, if you've never heard me, that's because I'm a death doula. And what are those even? I think we'll talk about a little bit more on the show um, and I can demystify a little bit of death curation. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, I, I feel that uh, a lot of my time at uh, comedy open mics, I Probably needed a death doula a few times. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, let's. So, uh, of course, you know we're recording this during the time of uh, of COVID nineteen. We are recording this in our in our respective houses. We're all practicing social distancing. But you know the the news is is very scary, and and the situation that we're currently in is very scary, and. People, I know people who know people who, who have died. Death is being reported all over the world and on the news. It is a very scary time. So I, I guess let's dive right into it. Uh, why, are, uh, <laughs> why are people afraid of death? Because I'm afraid of it, and it's definitely all over everywhere right now. Yeah, I, I'd love to take this question on. I, I think... On the surface, uh, what I love about this question is that it it seems to have so many different answers to it. Uh, people I've worked with have told me they're afraid of suffering or the unknown, um, leaving behind loved ones is a really big one too. Uh, but what I think is really interesting around the fear of death is the root of, of that fear, depending, it, despite all of the different answers that other folks may have. Uh, it's something that I realized as I worked more with people's digital legacies and, and asking and trying to figure out what would happen to their online presence after they died. And what I think might actually uh, be the fear around death is this surrendering of control that happens um, when death comes around. We've spent our whole life investing in who we are, how we're perceived, who's in our circles. Um, we have opportunities to like advocate for ourselves, correct 
any misunderstandings that people usually have about us. We can choose to ghost people if we want to. We can break up with folks. We, we seem to have this autonomy over how we are. And uh, it's a central part of experiencing life and being alive. And I, I think what I think death does and why it can be such a fearful thought to some is that it so unapologetically shines a light on how much of an illusion this control over our personhood actually is. So when the death, when the subject of death comes up, we actually have to start the process of accepting that uh, there might not be a lot in our hands and to consider that actually maybe it's never been in our hands in the first place. And that I think is scary as to a lot of people, yeah. to a lot of folks, yeah. Including myself, I mean, yeah. And I work with death, so I mean, I don't really know how and everyone else is supposed to deal with it, too. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, uh, uh, w w towards the beginning of each episode, I always love to check in with Jeff uh, to to see what inspired this this topic for him. Mm -hmm. So, Jeff, uh, you know, we've for Fear of Science, we've had a chance to talk about many different subjects. Uh, what inspired you to want to talk about this one? Well, originally I wanted to talk about it because I just thought it was an interesting subject. And when you talk about what you're afraid of, I think a lot of people come up with death as as their first thing. And then COVID-19 happened. And then I was like, well, now we really have to talk about it. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's kind of weird that it's topical and that death is really on a lot of people's minds right now. But yeah, death is everywhere. Death is huh. a constant worry, right? Oh. <laughs> it's right behind you, Daniel. <laughs> That's what I like about it, though. That's what I really like about death. I think death, to me, is uh, this amazing ultimate equalizer that no matter what happens in any capacity, this is the way it ends. It will end in some way for somebody. I had a great aunt who lived to 107 years old, and I've known people who've died in their teens. And it, and the ultimate thing is, is it, it is going to happen. And... and uh, I myself am an atheist, so I don't believe in an, in an afterlife uh, or anything like that. And I think that that gives the time we have such value, which I know is a hackneyed thing to say, but I believe it does. I think that the idea that, I mean, this COVID thing is a good example of, uh, you know, a lot of people are, are looking at numbers and getting afraid because they're just afraid of this thing that they don't, because fear, you know, the unknown is, is terrifying. You don't know what's going to mm -hmm. be, and that's the essence of fear. And so, you know, I think that, but that's what gives it value. Because if someone told you, this is the day you're going to die, this is the time you're going to die, you would completely change the way you operated in so many ways. The idea that every day is this scratch lottery ticket and you don't know what you're getting gives it this incredible value and that you know everyone else is playing the same game whether they have, you know, they're, they're poor or rich, whether they're old or young, because just because someone's old doesn't mean and their likelihood that they'll die before you is higher, but it doesn't mean they will, you get hit by a bus. So the ultimately, the thing is, is this is going to happen. Um, and the acceptance of that, the idea that there is this permanence to it too, that, that it, that it ultimately is, and then will be all that it ever was. And for me, you won't even know because it'll be like before you were. I love the idea of that because it's such a beautiful symmetry. So I find I'm not afraid of death. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid of suffering and all the other things that I think people, but the actual final thing 
The actual ultimate end does not frighten me at all because I won't know it. It won't be something yeah. I will experience. I'll experience well, going there, but I won't experience it once it's happened. Yeah, and that was kind of one of my first questions too, was how many people here fear death? Um, and as I was writing that question, um, I was like, I don't know how I would answer that. I don't know if I fear death. Mm-hmm. I always think of, of people who are are not afraid of death are, you know, like stunt people. People who jump out of planes, people who do like crazy shit. Yeah. Um, but I don't really fear death that much. I think I'm a bit of an optimist, though. Like, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die. I'm going to live my life the way I want to live my life now and not worry about what mm-hmm. could happen. So, um, wasn't that a that song, like um, that very popular song by that country artist back in the early to mid 2000s, Live Like You Were Dying? Oh, God. I, went, I know nothing about country music. In, I went <laughs> Rocky Mountain climbing. Uh, I, I, I also oh, hope I just, that we... I just lost all my respect for you. So that's not... <laughs> <laughs> not the same. I would like you to continue that song. <laughs> yeah. uh, it was a big crossover hit. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, uh, so uh, to, to answer your question, Jeff, um, I think um, I... Uh, Thank you, Simon, for, for sharing your perspective. Uh, for myself, I, I think that I fear death because I, uh, you know, I, I worry about whether or not I've, I've done enough on this world. I, I, I worry about whether or not I'm, I'm leaving the right legacy. Uh, I worry mm-hmm. about, you know, the people who, who uh, I'm worried about the people who I leave behind. And, and you know, as, as a middle-aged man, I'm, like, oh no, time is slipping away. <laughs> I gotta go. I gotta go take it. I gotta go find it. I gotta go get it back. <laughs> well, it doesn't, it's not as, it's the thing about time too that's so funny is like, I have a really hard time with linear time. I don't really like it and I'm not a fan mm-hmm. of it. Unfortunately, it's kind of how everything operates, but I also don't really enjoy the confines of it. So I live in this really weird space where. I choose not to participate as much as possible. <laughs> so I don't think about those things. I, that, that's the only mm. way I can is, is I look at it and I go, look, I have a child um, and I don't want to leave him and I don't want to leave my loved ones. And I don't, but ultimately that's my emotion for that person. It's not a personal thing about me. It's a protective instinct for someone else. For me, right. I don't know. I'm gone. It, you know, so, but the idea that it might not happen and it might happen tomorrow, I kind of think that's a wonderful privilege to have that constant, you know, it's at this every morning you wake up and you're like, hey, we get to do it again. Or we're going to do it again. <laughs> this is great. It's a lot of that, especially during, yeah. during this time. Yeah, it's it's so interesting because, of course, we're talking uh, in quarantine times here um, and death is more prevalent than ever in terms of this uh, virus that's going around. But what's interesting is millennials are actually um, a generation that has had to deal with death a little bit more than other generations have. So we have these, this, we're, we're a generation that has to deal with um, our parents uh, dying in a, in a way that is, you know, uh, a little bit um, sooner than, than most generations. Uh, In the past, people were getting married a lot younger, having kids earlier. And so the experience of their parents aging used to be at a different time in their life. And now we're having uh, this situation where 
folks are having kids and starting families at the same time as their parents passing away. So it's this very interesting uh, experience that's happening with this generation. And it's also inclusive of uh, this situation where there are more folks in our generation who are dying. Um, and social media has a lot to do with this. So um, the most common experience I hear from my clients is, um, you know, somebody who's uh, they, a loved one who's uh, committed suicide or has passed away uh, through sickness, and they have their birthday notifications popping up on their and so it's become more prevalent than ever our connection to death is more integrated in our social life whereas before death you know would have been at least in the western world it would have been something that you know we experience in isolation we experience ourselves uh, and then we come back and maybe mention it at work or or mention it to folks who are close to us but now that experience is integrated i have friends who feel pressure to actually announce that somebody they know has passed away you know i probably make a status about that or feel pressure to reach out to somebody that they don't quite know maybe you know it's a friend of a friend but they've met one time and oh well I, i feel like i should give my condolences to them that is a very new experience and i think folks are kind of grappling with what the etiquette is around death as well, while we're dealing with an internet age and this age of connectivity. So I find that to also be a fascinating and strange place that doesn't really have the answers either. I think that, I think that we, there's two things about that that are fascinating. Um, I recently just lost a grandfather and he was uh, 96 and almost 97. So it wasn't exactly a surprise, but it was a very, very Quick and easy, no pain, no nothing. The way you want to go, really. You know, 90, 96 plus years, no pain. And then you just have a massive stroke in your sleep. And, uh, you know, a few days later, your body decides to shut off. But it really was the way you want to go. But I didn't bother posting mm-hmm. about it or telling anybody because it wasn't... To me, it's not that I feel that death is a um, something that we... I think we have for a long time, and that's the interesting thing you said about social media. I think social media is removing some of the the, the, the privacy around death that we have we had i think uh, i was born in 77 so my generation is just a slightly a little bit older than the millennial generation and everything and i believe that my generation and maybe the generation before mine was very sheltered from the concept that you might die in some unnatural way or that death was something that should be talked about or shared because if you look at the old time i mean you know, really before the early part of the 20th century, death was just everywhere. It was just always, it was just constant. I mean, people were going to die. People had 30 kids because 10 of them were going to die. You know, children died, adults died. It was something that was just there and it was a constant thing. And you can go back as long as humans have been. That's just the way it was. And then all of a sudden we got kind of fat and happy and we lived in this place where we're like, well, you know, we have relatively good medical technology. We're unlikely to die from things like bacterial infections and childhood diseases like we did before. And so all of a sudden, you know, it, we became kind of insulated from the concept that we were this, we, we felt weirdly immortal. And then when people brought up death, it was like, oh, no, 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 no. We don't do that anymore. We're not taking part in that anymore. Mm. But social media, as it has with so many other things, has all of a sudden opened up doors in people's lives that we weren't previously seeing because mm-hmm. there's this really strange need to share. And I think the connection we get from that is going to, fundamentally change the way we look at things like death and mortality and life. And I think what's happening right now 
with COVID and stuff like that is an example of that. People are reacting the way they are because they're terrified, even though percentage-wise and mathematically, they probably don't need to be because the numbers really aren't there. It's not a world-ending plague, but people are so scared of it because they didn't think it was a thing that was going to happen 10 years ago. I can't even leave my house. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, this is something you touched on earlier, Simon, but I do think that there is um, inequity with death. I do think that there are aspects of privilege that affect um, whether you die earlier, whether, you know, you're more likely to die, um, whether you experience more death in your life. And what I usually find is folks who are risk of or uh, averse to death in general is is the fact that they haven't necessarily had to deal with it and so Mm -hmm. would like not to. Uh, yeah. would like not to have mm-hmm. to engage with that concept at all um, and is exactly that. It's a concept. Yeah. It's not an experiential yeah. thing that they have to go through. Um, I think there is disparity in terms of if, if you are from particular demographics, you are more likely to die. Uh, you oh, know, I agree with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so it's what's interesting in the time of COVID-19 is that, you know, we there are anomalies. So with who gets to die you know, with this virus. Um, of course, there's elderly folks and there's this population, but there's also immunocompromised people who are our age. And mm-hmm. that, yeah. that yeah. has been fascinating because the collective grief around this idea that somebody you know will die um, and not necessarily, quote unquote, an old person mm-hmm. is something that I find is really scary to some because we're at this you know most folks are at an age where they don't have to think about this we have that privilege of being like later you know maybe down the yeah, line maybe yeah. when you know, like you mentioned uh, daniel when i have kids when that is something that's a little bit more pertinent to my time and the relationships i have in my life and some folks aren't there but now we're almost interrupted with this idea that hey we have to think about this we have to kind of figure out what it, it what it means for people we know to to pass away and it's this is i think really interesting with uh with what's happening with covid in relation to death yeah thank you now uh uh two quick things a uh that uh, this is reminding me of that other hit song uh by the <laughs> flaming by the flaming lips uh do you realize oh yeah uh, <laughs> Do you realize that everyone you know someday will die? Did you uh, at your phone for lyrics? Yeah. <laughs> did you just did you just do that to redeem yourself from the country music? So, That's what he did. That's totally what he did. Uh, but before my follow-up thing, I was going to say uh, I I once went to a very beautiful wedding. It was very beautiful, but the but the song that that they chose to uh, for for the bridesmaids and the bride to walk out to was Do You Realize by the Flaming Lips. Oh. It's beautiful and thought-provoking, for sure. And now, it was a uh, warning. Ramila, uh, for, for myself and for our Fear of Science listeners, I, I've been wanting to ask this for a while, and you've touched upon this uh, a few different places. Um, what is a death doula, and how did how did you get into it? How does one become a death doula? Yeah, so a death doula is a non-medical um, 
individual who works with folks who are uh, either dying or families who have lost a loved one. Um, and so uh, aspects of the logistics of death is usually what a death doula deals with. So uh, the medical system is really great in being able to cover grounds of um you know, the process of somebody actually going through uh, death. But what sometimes is not addressed is uh, the comfort of somebody, um, their preferences, you know, uh, are there spiritual aspects you want to embed? Are there no spiritual aspects you want to embed? And, and do, do you want that also respected? Um, who do you want around you? Um, are there you know, sense that you want? Are there none? So it's, it's almost uh, a curation of experience for the person who is nearing the end of their life. Um, yeah, it's so interesting. I actually just recently got certified uh, and it's such an, it's a strange thing to say because, uh, the, you know, death is, is such a universal experience. I really love the way that you captured it, um, Simon. And it was, it's, it's just such a strange thing to actually, uh, institutionalize in, in some sort of way. So that's been really weird for me to be quite honest, but I've been doing this uh, work, if you will, like since I was 12, um, I've held my first funeral and wrote a eulogy for folks who have passed away in my life or just been asked to. So this work has, is something that I've, I've always done. It's sort of been a lifetime journey, but um, yeah, uh, something about having a piece of paper and being yeah. able to say I'm certified <laughs> it brings a lot of trust in uh, in folks and uh, they like hearing that I think so it's a pretty interesting thing uh, we don't actually have a standard of certification in Canada uh, in the US I think they're moving closer towards doing that uh, so the way that I got certified was with a US institution who um, does training with uh, a shadowing as well. So you can actually uh, be at the last stages of, of somebody who is passing away with somebody who's already certified as a doula. So that was something that I, I really appreciated is, is getting to see folks who are already in the field and are, are sort of OG in having the experience of, of lobbying for that as well. So that's really interesting. I would say that if you have a comfort with death if you are somebody who is able to have a relationship with it in terms of being curious in in terms of being able to hold space for different and intense emotions when it comes for uh to not just the person who is uh nearing the end of their life but also family members around that um i mm. think that uh, being a death doula is something that is is, is really interesting to consider. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Um, I, uh, I recently lost someone very close to me and, uh, it was, a, a very, uh, it was a very surreal, absolutely powerful m moment. Um, I, I was lucky to be able to help support the family and to help, uh, be there in the moment, um, in, in the moment, uh, as, as it was happening. And it was, uh, it was the, it was the hardest thing that I have done in a very long time. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, it's almost like, like a privilege to have been a part of it. Mm -hmm. 
but mm-hmm. the, but, yeah. the, but the thing that that struck me as as the situation was was happening you know uh i i wonder slash wish that there was a way that that we could educate people educate educate children about about this you know we we have uh sex ed and we we learn about the birds and the bees but you know we so we talk about birth and and how life is made but you know it was the first time that I've really ever had to see the other, the other end. And it was a very, it was very hard, very hard. That's so, thank you so much for sharing that. I think it's so interesting that you bring up children because I think that rather than it being something that we need to be educated on, I think it's actually something that we unlearn. Um, So I think death literacy is actually something that we, have embedded in our life. And when you think of death, I think death is very, um, what is the word trivialized? I think death is very trivialized. It's a, it's, you know, when you say it, it evokes a lot of emotion for folks, but when you use the word grief, and I think that's really what, you know, folks are talking about when they, when they talk about death is whether or not you've experienced a death, you have experience grief and grief is this incredible coach to get us to that moment or to of readiness for death if you've dealt with a breakup that is that grief is is similar to the coaching of what you would go through um, when you lose a loved one and I think kids are actually so attuned to this you know what I mean you are uh, really grieving the loss of something cry your eyes out you know what I mean or (laughs) laugh and then that's super inappropriate you know we have deemed it to be super inappropriate but they have this incredible spectrum of emotion that they're able to tap to and comfortable with tapping into because they don't have uh, particular stigmas that we have deemed as appropriate or inappropriate to show up when it comes to death and i think this is an interesting thing where it comes in as a comedian because um i have a very dark sense of humor um because of the way that i i work with the world i, I have a history of mental illness uh, depression anxiety obsessive compulsive disorder and i've been suicidal numerous times in my life and so I, I i use this um humor as a weapon to uh to navigate the world and to fight off the thing and because of that the way my brain works is you know, it's funny as a comedian, people will be like, oh, you can't joke about that. Or that's, that's, no, that's not true. You, you can't tell someone else how to deal with emptiness or grief. You can't, you can't, to impose your ideals of how to emotionally handle something is gross. It's, it's, to me, it's, it's, it's beyond inappropriate because this is a, a profoundly intimate thing, how someone deals with the concept of death, even if it's a death that's not associated with them directly. I find humor is the is the most powerful thing I have to both show um, how much I feel about something and how do you, it's not even necessarily about that particular loss to me as a person. It's wanting to comment or do something because I feel the loss of a, like when a celebrity dies, for instance. I don't know that person. I don't know much about them, but there's something about it that makes me feel like I need to somehow loosen the pressure and i don't know what that is in me but i need to do it and i think a lot of people like when i perform for first responders and people who deal with this and horrendous things every day they have the darkest senses of humor because you have to because if you don't you're just setting yourself up for carrying around all these things to 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 look at humor particularly as negative in a way of dealing with something is to deny yourself 
a tool that you can use. And I'm not saying everybody has to find this funny, but I think to say that someone is somehow not experiencing and not giving it gravitas because they don't sit there and mourn and weep the same way. When my grandmother died, who I was incredibly close to, I made jokes about her on stage. Uh, two hours after she died, I was on stage making jokes about her because that's how I do things. And that was my highest form of respect for her because it's the way I interacted with her. That's the Simon King yeah. we know and love. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I may be a bit dark, but... <laughs> I think that's interesting as well because it's it's like people want to regulate how you feel emotion and when you feel emotion and how it's appropriate. I remember when my grandfather died, I was, I was about 16, 17, something like that. And I didn't cry at the hospital when he died because I had such a flood of emotions mm-hmm. um, and probably a large amount of hormones at the time when I was 17 mm-hmm. that I didn't know how to deal with. It. I didn't know what to do. And I remember that just overwhelming feeling of guilt because everybody else in my family was crying um, and I wasn't. Mm-hmm. So I remember sitting there and forcing myself to cry to and feeling like I was a monster inside because I, I didn't have the same emotions. But that's the kind of stuff that we don't get taught. That's the kind of stuff we don't know. Mm-hmm. We don't know that other people feel different ways. Other people handle emotions and handle stress and handle everything differently. If Simon wants to make a joke about his grandmother after she dies, that's totally within his right to. Mm -hmm. And that's just the way he handles it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What I will say to that as well is one thing that I think is really beautiful in this era of social media is the humor and the dark humor that is surfacing around death and grief. There are death memes. There is a grief community that you can tap into on Twitter if you need to. Um, People keeping their Facebook accounts open have become somewhat of a digital tombstone. And people post jokes in there. You know, they they reminisce. um, And so the appropriateness of what to do in the time of death and how to look is also shifting and bending as well it's it and i find that really fascinating meme culture around death is like man i could i i would love to do maybe like even an event on that because it's just that is a way of collective comic relief mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. I think, I think it's about this thing that that uh you're exactly right and 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 being a comedian also comedians are some of the most uh, not disturbed, but very strange people you will ever meet because we're not doing comedy because True. things are going well, right? So like, it's like, like not, not a sign you're happy. But the thing is, is we have a certain kind of way of looking at the world. And the reason we look at the world the way we do is for whatever, the majority of comedians I know have experienced trauma. There's very, very few comedians I, I know that have not come from some sort, or at least comedians that are legitimately comedians, not someone who doesn't open mic once twice, but like someone who's like in it, Um, it's because there's this weird emptiness they're filling anyway. And so there's this strange need for acceptance and connection and everything else. And in death, what we see, because comedians also tend to die quite young. Comedians don't live very long. They they tend to die quite young for various reasons, drinking themselves to death and accidents. It happens a lot. I know dozens of comedians who've died well before they die. And, And I think that one of the reasons is, is because we have this weird constant intake of emotion that we're on we're on this constant way of like feeling the zeitgeist and trying to connect to it and and i think that 
the further down those holes you get, that's why social media is interesting because you are opening those doors in people who you wouldn't know if the, the, you know, the lady that gets her coffee in front of you at the, at the Starbucks in the morning has a, a f- sense of humor. You wouldn't know that. But, but now mm-hmm. if you're friends with her on Facebook, you'd be like, Oh, Kathy's insane. Like I'm insane too. And, now you have a connection. and that's beautiful because instead of being this taboo, you know, we can't talk about that. And it also has the opposite effect too, where people that, you know, you, you build these connections with people that are similar and also people that are not like I lose Facebook friends sometimes because of jokes I make regarding, you know, and not just because that's the way it is. And other times you find people that you connect more. And I never blame people for unfriending me or disappearing for stuff like that. And just as much as I don't judge people for, you know, particularly digging into the jokes, because I, that's not my privilege to do. I'm not allowed to decide how you deal with the world any more than you're allowed to decide how I do, as long as nobody's getting hurt. And, and so to me, there's this amazing new connection that's happening that, that we really didn't have insight to maybe you know, 15 years ago, that now these death memes and stuff, you can see this and you can be like, some people will be like, oh, that's, that's just appalling and disrespectful. Maybe it's the highest form of respect for all you know. Maybe that's the most kind. When I went to see my grandma in the hospital as she was dying, I felt a push in my chest I'd never felt before. I couldn't walk into the room. She was in a coma. I couldn't walk into the room. I felt this incredible, overwhelming tidal wave, but not grief. It was this, it was almost a physical push. And then I went and I saw her and I just found it hilarious and I couldn't stop finding it funny. And that Mm. to me meant that it was okay. And that to me meant that I was processing it and I didn't cry and I didn't cry when my grandfather died. And I I don't cry. I cried when my dog died, but it's my dog, but I don't cry (laughs) because I think we have human relationships are not binary. They're very complicated. They're not, you know, left or right, black or white. They're very, very, difficult things to you cannot encapsulate them i don't think in one way someone programs one uh, 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 sorry approaches one emotion or not. i don't think you can so why is it so difficult to um to separate death um from and grief i should say more in general um and that that feeling and those emotions and creating those guidelines and rules around it like why do you feel like you have to grieve in a very certain way uh, compared to, you know, a lot of people accept that you can laugh in a different way. You can have a different, different emotions around that. Um, but grief, there is just, you know, this is the way it needs to be. It's almost ceremonial mm-hmm. that this is the way that you have to have to deal with someone's death. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not to sound like an anarchist, but I usually find that this is very tied to capitalistic individualism. We are supposed to deal with this shit on our own and we have Mm -hmm. to figure it out and come back so we can do business as usual. And this is fascinating also during uh, quarantine times because uh, the world around us is shifting. I actually, uh, so uh, the great depression that we, you know, of course the uh, folks have referred to, there, I've heard folks referring to this as the great grief. It's uh-huh. this depression where uh, something has happened and now we're looking back at a past that doesn't exist. We are right now in this shifting 
world where we don't actually know what it's going to look like. You know, we don't know which infrastructures are going to last. And this shift and this this constant unknowing, you know, of what is going to still be around, you know, whether money is, is going to have any value in the next couple of months, um, whether the folks we know are still going to be around. It's, it's people have referred to this time of COVID-19 as the great grief. And I thought that that was really interesting because this is an incredible opportunity where we're all collectively dealing with the, a loss that, you know, mm-hmm. the, the world shifting, but we're not all experiencing it uh, similarly. We're all experiencing it yeah. so uniquely. And yet there are still these expectations of um, moving your you know, work online, um, making sure that you're continuing to be productive. Um, these are the same expectations that people have to deal with when somebody dies. Uh, you have the government gives you two days off of work uh, if you if if somebody you know has died. That is that is the the official procedure is you get two days off from work and then you're expected to come back and you know. Uh, deal with that on your own we don't have a process in within our system to actually accommodate to grief in our culture and so i think what the expectation is is to kind of figure it out um and come back and show face in a way that doesn't affect uh, the other others around you and i think that's why we have not developed a sense or a, a collective system of how do we do this you know together as opposed to somebody being out on their own. Right. I absolutely agree with that. Absolutely agree with that. I think you're totally correct that social media has given us something that it's become, there's a lot of problems with social media. There's a lot of difficulties, but one of the one beautiful things that it's done is it's, it's made us realize just how small things really are and how similar we are in a lot of ways and how different we are. But I think that this, this, because we're, humans are pack animals, right? Like we want to go with the pack. I mean, you only have to be a comic for a few years to realize that you can move people wherever you want them to go. I mean, it's true. Like they will follow you. I used to have a bit off the top of my act where I would get the audience to agree it's time to destroy the sun. And the whole reason I would do that is just to prove to them that I just tricked them into doing it. And they will weirdly follow you. They want to do what, and that's the thing with that's interesting about COVID is that one of the reasons I got off Facebook for a while was because I couldn't take the feedback loop of, I'm afraid I need you to be as afraid or more afraid than me to make me feel less afraid. And there's this weird kind of link of like, because if you look at the numbers of it, if you look at the logistics of it and everything else, I mean, this is not a, this is not an end of the species event, but I mean, it's not even close, but you wouldn't know that to talk to some people on Facebook. They really believe because they, don't want to believe, but they want you to believe so that they can feel comfort. Because if we're all afraid together, then I don't feel bad for being afraid. And and there's a strangeness yeah. to that. And media feeds it. And then, and then social media, I think, pushes it. And then what happens is it gets this critical mass where things turn into the... I'm not by any means downplaying what's happening. But what I'm saying is the way we're reacting to it is unique. And, and I think, I hope this is, like you said, uh, something we're learning, going to learn from, and we're going to, maybe this will break down some boundaries. Because we need to make this evolution. We are emotionally not nearly as evolved as we are technologically and everything else. Yeah. We need to learn to do this because it will help us see people as people. Because we don't see each other as people, particularly online. But if yeah. we're all going to die and we all fear death and we all have this connection, 
we will ultimately see each other as this weird equality, regardless of, I mean, obviously social standing and everything still exists, but yeah, you're right. Yeah. It takes us out of that capitalist, well, I'll die better than you because I'm better. No, none of that exists anymore. Now it's like, <laughs> oh shit, Carl's dad died. Carl's dad was 56. My dad's 56. Like it's that weird thing. And I think yeah, yeah. this is going to be a really interesting time. We're going to look back on this in a, for a long time and see it as a sea change, I think. I think it is, yeah. And I think that it's really bringing out um, the worst and the best in society right mm-hmm. now um, on different levels. Um, one thing I was I looked up, because when Ramil was talking about how we're going through um, a time of grief, one thing I was thinking was, well, when you think of grief, the first thing that comes to mind is the seven stages of grief. Mm-hmm. So how much do the seven stages of grief relate to COVID-19 right now? Oh, I, this is a great question. This is actually something I was thinking about. I've been thinking about for the past few days, uh, just in relation to what we were talking about um, in terms of folks, not all experiencing this grief equally. Mm -hmm. So the folks I was thinking who are, unaffected by this, who have the privilege of, you know, um, being in positions where they don't necessarily have to think about their health, they don't necessarily have to think about uh, what social distancing means, they don't maybe have somebody around them who's immunocompromised, uh, happen to also be people who are in positions of power. uh, And Mm. the denial that I've been experiencing around the, uh, the, the magnitude and the, the severity of COVID-19 and what it means for us to kind of grieve this collective loss of uh, jobs, of, you know, of normalcy, of, of our very investment of, what we've, of how, we've, how we have chosen to exist for the past few years is affecting folks who are grieving differently. Folks who right. are, you know, in a, a place where they are actually, uh, you know, they have loved ones, they have folks who they have to think about, but do not have the privilege to not show up to work, who yeah. that is being affected. Uh, and so you're seeing people in multiple stages of grief. And by the way, um, to also bring into, you know, invite this like nonlinear time um, into this conversation the stages of grief is not a linear stage either. Yeah, it's not, you know, yeah. you first go through denial and then you go through anger. So um, just to kind of make sure that that's, that's said. Uh, but with that being said, pe- people who are in different stages of grief, I think are really affected also by the power dynamics that are happening. And I cannot stop thinking about it. I think that yeah. that's why yeah. some we are so desperately holding on to some of the things that are part of the status quo when actually we sh- what we can do with that space is reimagine. And exactly as Simon was saying is, is, you know, we have this ability to actually expand our emotional intelligence and we're not yet ready to do that because there's still some denialism around that, which is a very real part of grief. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. This, uh, uh, it, it reminds me of, the powerful song 
five. Oh God! By Faith Evans and Sean uh, Sean Combs. Uh, I thought it was going to uh, Of course, the the hit song "I'll Be Missing You." Uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, words can't express what you mean to me. Even though you're gone, we're still a team. You know, it's a really great uh, uh, example of how sometimes you just need to share your grief uh, in in many different ways. And uh, I really think that, that song spoke to many people, including myself. <laughs> Daniel, I think you need to release a playlist with yeah. this episode. Yeah. <laughs> that, call it, call it the fear grief. of science playlist. <laughs> good, good grief, Daniel Chime playlist. <laughs> I I think the most fascinating thing as a as a, a person who spent twenty years kind of observing strangers, which is what I do, I think the most fascinating thing about this has been how it how people's empathy is showing or not showing in certain cases. And I think that's very tied to because there's ways people react like I myself am not worried about getting um this disease. If I get it, I, I'm, I'm unlikely. I have no pre-existing conditions. I, I'm unlikely to be. And so is really anybody in my family. I'm terrified of giving it to someone by accident and causing someone hmm. pain or even death. I really, that's the thing that that upsets me the most. You know, left to my own devices, I, I, if it was just me that was at risk, I'd be like, well, whatever, we get it, we get it. But it's not. It's, it's you know, that's what I'm seeing is the way people either think of, you know, me or them. And you're seeing this this behavior, and, and that comes back to capitalism too, because that is a programming that goes through our, you know, the idea of the American dream. And I use that because it's the, the most gross example of a capitalist state that we have. But I mean, if you look at it, the idea that um, me, mine, I should get better, more, I can do it, me, this thing becomes this kind of weird animal that that constantly must be fed reassurance that you are important. It's about you. The idea of being empathetic is seen as many as a weakness, and I think it's not. I think empathy is an incredibly powerful tool, and I think what we might be seeing here is that people for the first time, and one of the reasons I think people are reacting like this, is that maybe, maybe people, some people are finally realizing that like, well, this probably won't affect me, but all these poor people, and how can I, when Italy blew up. Yeah. I think that's the thing that really hit a lot of the Western world. Because before it was just far away. And I think when Italy blew up, they were like, oh my God, these are people's family members. And I don't know anyone my age who's worried about personally dying or really, or dying or being, you know, even that sick by it. But I know so many people my age who are terrified for other people, which is great in a way that they have that. It's also the difference of Italy having a death toll versus China having a death toll. Mm-hmm. That's real. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But what I would mm-hmm. love to talk about as well, just as as you were kind of capturing that experience, Simon, is the fetishism around death. So mm-hmm. this is what I used to kind of describe this this egoic experience of when somebody is experiencing uh, or seeing somebody else experience death is making it about themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is a, right. this is something that is so interesting and, and that <laughs> happens. And it uh, usually what folks deal with is is it's it's family members who have dealt with a loss or friends or, or significant others who are dealing with a loss. They will have strangers, you know, reach out to them and say and inflate the experience. Uh, in which that person has had a relationship with the person who has passed away. Mm-hmm. And the, the only mm-hmm. way that I can uh, capture the experience is that death, uh, that fetishism around that death is 
it's, hey, mm-hmm. you know, I'm so close to this experience. Let me uh, attach myself to it somehow. And I, I mm-hmm. sincerely, I cannot psychologically break that down. I don't have the merit to do that, but it no. is something that I can observe. And I have been able to see it as a pattern, but I have, no, I have no answers. And I think it's so fascinating also around the time of COVID-19, because that was the, uh, I think something that is really true of what you were talking about, Simon, when it comes to those Facebook comments of that, of that collective fear that mm-hmm. folks are, are really diving into. It's like, oh, well, this is, you know, this is something that could affect all of us. And suddenly, you know, which is the, the other side of the pendulum around yeah. that denial is really getting into, it could affect me um, mm-hmm. in, in ways that are quite unhealthy as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, hearing this, this actually, um, have, have any of you had a chance to see uh, the Broadway musical uh, Dear Evan Hansen? No. No. Is that the bourbon? Uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Dear Evan, Dear Evan Hansen, um, it is uh, it is one of the the biggest Broadway musicals of the last oh, couple yeah. of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, recently played here in Vancouver. Um, it broke box office records in New York. Uh, and what Dear Evan Hansen is, it is essentially, it is essentially a musical about um, about death and and grieving and um, how people connect to someone's death and how death can be be used for better or for worse. And uh, it's it's a beautiful musical. There's there's other layers to it, but essentially, it's a hit musical about about a death. And the aftermath of it. I love that. It, yeah, it was very fascinating. Well, I think this is something that, that I've been thinking about for a long time. And I think that the, the way we deal with uh, the sale of emotion and the, the, not the weaponization, but the utility of emotion in our society is particularly interesting. Everything, you know, we, we are so good at marketing and selling a feeling to each other. We, we, we sell, you know, as humans, we, we market uh, towards lust. We market towards fear. I mean, we've been marketing towards fear forever. A lot of organized religions for years have been focusing on the, you must be afraid to give us this thing. Um, we market towards, I think we have almost trivialized in a lot of ways. I'm not saying that it needs to be dealt with, like with kid gloves and be given this incredible gravitas and we can't talk about things openly. I think it's quite the opposite. I think we, I mean, look at how many TV shows or movies are focused around just murder and death. And it's so common and it's so given and it's so, you know, bad guy comes around the corner, gets shot in the head. You don't think that that bad guy was once four and riding a bicycle. And you know what I mean? You never think about it. There's no... He had a family. Death (laughs) The death is this kind of almost pornographic trigger where we go, that's a thing. And it happened to someone else and it didn't happen to me. And I'm happy about it. I read an article a little while ago about how... Human beings, short and proud, and the reason it is the way it is, is because it's this weird comfort that because it's happening to someone else, it's not happening to me, and I'm safe. And I think that's something that we're not going to get. That's that whole aspect of it's happening in China. Or like in in the time of when the Ebola outbreak happened in in Africa that nobody really cared much about, um, there were also 50,000 plus deaths from measles that nobody really mentioned. Nobody talks about children the death toll in yemen is going to be it's going to dwarf what's going to happen with covid probably the death toll from the syrian war that i mean these are things that are happening right now i was in the uk when um that picture of that poor child 
uh, washed up on the beach. And for a moment, for a moment, people actually thought about it. They didn't care necessarily, but they thought mm -hmm. about it. And then it just went away. And I think the thing that's happening with COVID, because logically, even worst case scenario numbers wise, we're not looking at something that's potentially going to be as deadly as, you know, the wars we've had in the last 15 years. I mean, if you think about how many Iraqi civilians have died, but they don't keep those mm -hmm. numbers. They don't mention those numbers. And it's because nobody, nobody cares unless they can put themselves, and that's that fetishism. If they can put themselves in that place, all of a sudden it's like, oh, this could be me. Like, it could be about me. It's just as important. But the sad thing is, it's the hangnail theory. You know, when, when you have a hangnail, it bothers you more than a child starving to death in Somalia. You just, it just does. Because you, don't, you can't mm -hmm. process that all the time. What's happening with social media and what's happening with the way we're connecting now is that these things are not just disappearing overnight. They're actually becoming a thing that we have to think about all the time. And this, what's happening right now with it inconveniencing us, because that's what this really is. We're being stuck inside. I'm not talking about the people dying. I'm talking about those of us who are being stuck inside and getting mad about it. Like, oh, I can't yeah. go out and do my thing. That, all of a sudden, it now it affects me. So now it must mm -hmm. be real. Now I'm afraid. The NBA canceled their season. I can't watch my sports. <laughs> yeah. It must be real. Because it affects yeah, me. exactly. So imagine if the NBA, yeah. <laughs> well, imagine if the NHL stopped playing every time children started. I mean, what is it? Eight thousand kids die a day from starvation. Imagine if we paid the same attention to that. And that's yeah. why I'm kind of hoping what we're doing now might teach us, because the environmental crises that are coming and everything are going to dwarf this. They're going to make this. Because what's going to happen when the sky's on fire is going to be terrifying. Maybe this is teaching us that a we can do this if we have to, because this is minor compared to what's coming, and B, if we do something, we can affect change. Because if we do stem the tide, which it seems like we might be doing, we can actually teach ourselves that, oh, it's not fruitless, it's not useless. Acting as a yeah. group as opposed to acting as an individual is beneficial. That's the beauty of it, I think. Yeah. Say beauty. I think what is really beautiful around this time, too, is because there is such a, a need and a lack of opportunities for folks to have those spaces where they can tap into collective grief or mourn together that w there's this really innovative you know sort of communities that are coming out uh you know death doulas getting certified um they're still trying to figure out uh where they fit into the system that's already established and what one of my fears, uh, you know, around this, and you kind of touched on it, Simon, is this idea that once it actually does get traction and folks do start caring and folks do start having literacy around death and grief, that it's also going to be a catalyst for the marketization of mm -hmm. death and grief. Absolutely. And Right. And Absolutely. I think the cannabis industry, when I think about this as well, and just the fact that, you know, there there is culture around death right now in a mm -hmm. way that is intimate, in a way that is almost referral based. You know, mm -hmm. you need to know somebody who's gone through a death as well, who has developed their own resources and it gets passed down to you. And there's something so beautiful about that. There's almost like that same relationship that, you know, that same intimacy you had with a drug dealer uh, mm -hmm. when you, you needed to get, you know, your, your, um, your gram of weed. And 
now. It's a relationship I miss the most. You know? (laughs) (laughs) That's so Vancouver, too. (laughs) And that is people, I think that's, there's collective grief around that. Speaking. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we're going to, we've, we now see that, you know, um, cannabis is sexy, even mm-hmm. the word cannabis, right? Like it's like weed is something now that can be marketed that, you know, millennial moms are having access to that, you know, you can, it's, it's untabooed, but at the same time, it's also become part of this capitalistic system in ways that are super unhealthy um and have also denied the very people who built you know those infrastructures and that culture and that history the same ability to access that and so speaking of fears it is certainly a fear that i have around um around advancements if you will or or around you know um Mm -hmm. normalizing death into the general population well what's what's changing that's interesting um is like, so when I started stand-up even, the idea of talking about suicide on stage was considered to be extremely risky and difficult. Um, and I uh, I realized about 10 years into my career, is like, I want to talk about this because this is something that affects me and something that I feel. And it's this is ultimately, you know, I'm not doing this for any reason other than the fact that I want to express myself and I want to share. And the amount of connection I've had with people talking about not just that, but you know, the darker jokes and often they, they connect with people in a way. I'm not lying when I say in an average year, I'll hug about five to 10 crying middle-aged men after shows. It just seems to be a thing that they come and, and they connect with you in ways you would never expect because humor lowers the guard. And then all of a sudden they're like, Oh, right. This, because we weren't, we're not supposed to talk about it. It's not polite and it's not, or, you know, if we do, uh, talk about these things. We have to talk about it in such a serious and difficult way. I've had people say to me that I shouldn't make jokes about it because I'm getting laughs off a serious subject, and which is to me mm-hmm. is the strangest thing. Like that, I'm monetizing the idea that that people could die or people die. That's not what I'm doing at all. What I'm doing is connecting. But there is definitely yeah. a risk of that, and I see what you're saying. There's definitely a risk of because I always believe if if humans do it, they'll try and sell it. It's just the way we are. And I think that there's going to be this very strange period for the next few years where, because people are seeing, and don't think for one second, people with marketing brains aren't seeing how we're all connecting together and we're all moving in one direction. And they're going to see this and be like, how can I get a boat on that uh, river? How can I make money off that? And Mm. it's going to be really interesting to see because we're all doing this because this inconveniences us. That's why it feels real. H1N1 didn't feel real. I was I was saying the other day that I don't remember that being. It was a terrifying thing. If you look at the numbers, it was terrifying. I don't remember it. I really don't remember yeah. it. I was in LA at the time and I don't remember it. And I think it's because it didn't inconvenience me, even though I was more likely yeah. to get it or die from it than this. But it didn't. Nobody canceled games and you know, I didn't have to get onto the back of the bus. I don't understand why. So I think this is an interesting thing where it's become real. Maybe not the actual, the the mortality aspect of it has become as real as the, well, this affects me in some way. Because I don't think most people think they're going to die from it. I think a lot of people think it must be real because it's affecting me in some capacity. Like there's no toilet paper. Right. Now. That's a problem that I didn't have yeah. six weeks ago, you know? I think who is telling the joke and who is marketing 
the commodity also matters a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, you are somebody who has move through the very experiences that you are joking about. Mm -hmm. I'm somebody who is offering a service based off of an experience that I have had on multiple occasions. Mm -hmm. And I also belong to a demographic that is more likely that happens to be more likely to experience death and to, Mm -hmm. you know, um, be uh, exposed to death and have friends who are, you know, experiencing this. And I think that also matters. And and that isn't something that is talked about. So this certification that I got, I reached out to this American institution and I said, I am looking at your curriculum and I see that there is a lot of Eastern philosophy that is part of your doula program. And it the program was five to, to eight grand is how much it was for people to get certified. And mm-hmm. so I am not a person who can afford that. Mm-hmm. Also, the uh, the philosophies that you have in your curriculum are mine. And mm-hmm. I deserve access to that. And mm-hmm. I have a scholarship to be able to do that so that mm-hmm. I can start providing that to my own people. Awesome. And that, I think, is the difference, you know what I mean? Between, mm-hmm. between that fear of being... Um, of having that become commodified outside of the very folks who built it. And then also, but at the same time, being the person who is allowing for a commodification because you're trying to create accessibility. It's Mm so nuanced and there's like this little shift in terms of the difference, but the difference is there. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's also interesting is just because like, we can't help that we're in a capitalistic system you know, we're, we're making, you're making jokes on stage, you know, uh, because that's kind of the world that we operate in. I am, I ha, I, I do, um, you know, make my service, my services are payable. Like I, I charge people mm-hmm. for my service, that is the world that we live in. I have to do that in order to, to be able to live in it. But that doesn't, uh, I think that is different from, from that, you know, marketization of it suddenly becoming cool and suddenly mm-hmm. becoming like death suddenly becoming sexy, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, which is, yeah, which I think is an interesting difference to make. Um, this is such an amazing discussion. I, I feel bad actually just even wrapping this all up, but, but uh, we're, <laughs> we're starting to go long right now. I feel that this could be yeah, like sorry. a three hour long episode. This is just amazing. <laughs> Yeah, it's, uh, it's, um, I'm loving. Uh, I what I love about this, Jeff, is that uh, uh, hearing not only experiences, but I uh, I can hear real passion from from both of our special yeah. guests, from Simon Romila, um, from from both your points of views, but uh, also I can I can hear both of you really wanting to help people in your respective mm-hmm. ways, and that's really uh, that's really uh, honorable, and that's very uh, it's very. Uh, inspiring and touching to see so thank you both very much for joining thank us you. thank you very much yeah it's yeah wonderful. thank you i really appreciate you bringing me on uh i, I was gonna say uh uh jeff what i what i love about the, the almost like the evolution of, of fear of science is that um you know we were managing to to talk about these subjects that are very hard and very difficult and you know for for myself over this past hour of this episode uh i've heard many different perspectives from our special guests and i'm even starting to to think about my own uh you know my own privilege around around the subject uh, around my own beliefs about it and i I hope that our listeners 
get to share some of that too because it's it's very powerful. And I hope that you share your death playlist. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were, yeah, you were going to wrap up with lyrics. Yeah, yeah you've got to uh, put yeah. something in there that's like you've got I, I, karaoke I, is out as. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I got the rules of three in. Um, but, yeah. but in all seriousness, Jeff, uh, I think, you know, uh, I think that we could and should start, uh, uh, you know, a, a Fear of Science Spotify playlist. Yeah, definitely. Right. Yeah. Are now, uh, <laughs> I love the uh, idea. I love yeah. the idea. I think it's great. I think it should be something that's like you could just like download, put it on the the death memes thing, and just put it like a playlist. You're like, hey, feeling a little down? Oh boy, check out 2002's biggest country crossover hit. <laughs> Live like you were dying. Live like you were dying. Uh, that's we recommend. That you listen to this music in the background while listening to this episode of Fear of Science. Uh, now, uh, for, for our listeners, uh, we where can they learn more about uh, Simon, your stand-up, and Romila, your services? Where can our listeners learn more about you? You can find me at uh, discoverjua.com. Um, this is where I... Uh, you can access my death curation services. Uh, I'm really interested in creating collective experiences around grief uh, and death. And so if that's something that you're interested in brainstorming around, uh, even in these quarantine times, there, that's where you can find me, discoverjua.com. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, and you can find me at thisissimonking.com. And uh, not on tour for the foreseeable future. I can't imagine why. Um, but, <laughs> but you can find me there. And, uh, and yeah, and, uh, and I have a podcast called uh, What's Wrong with Simon King. Uh, and you can uh, check that out wherever you get your fine and wonderful podcast. Only after you listen to this podcast first. <laughs> wonderful. And, and for us, uh, you can find us on Instagram, uh, Twitter, and uh, Facebook. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, at Science Fears and on Facebook at uh, Fear of Science. And you can find us uh, uh, doing this again soon. Jeff, this has been a lot of fun. I think, uh, you know, connecting with, with you and connecting with our special yeah. guests and our listeners during this time uh, is very important. So this, this remote Zencaster recording went a lot better than I thought it was going to. <laughs> uh, thank you very much, everybody, for listening. Bye. And we will talk with you again soon. All right. Thank you.